0: Let's take our Bibles this morning and open to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 as we wrap up our study of Colossians over the next few weeks. Colossians chapter 4. I think it's safe to say that we live in a time in history where more photos are taken on a daily basis than at any other point in time. Would you agree? Gone are the days of carrying around a, a physical camera with physical uh, developable film that we take to the drugstore and drop off for 48 hours waiting anxiously to see if we actually captured what we thought we did or if our finger was in the way or whatever it may have been now we carry around our device in our pocket and it has cameras on it that really go beyond most of our capabilities and we can magically take great photos even without training you know I thought about that because photographs are meaningful to us because They capture moments in time that become memories for us. When we look back at photos, often we're not looking at the the scenery in the background. We're remembering the moment in time, the memory that goes with that photo, and the people in the photo. And it's interesting how just a quick glance at a picture can bring back all of these feelings and emotions and memories about the people that are there in that photograph. John MacArthur compares this text that we're studying today to a a still-shot image in the ministry and life of the Apostle Paul. And that's really what we have here. We have this moment in time at the end of Colossians in Paul's life and ministry. And what we see is that in this image is not just Paul himself, but a group of faithful believers serving in and around him and behind the scenes. Last week, we began to to look at what was Paul's really final admonition. We, we, We closed out the teaching portion of the letter in Colossians chapter 4, but today we begin to look at his closing remarks, those final parting words that he wants to leave with the Colossians. And what we see is that there are eight men working alongside him in the ministry to support him while he's there imprisoned in Rome. And if we're not careful, when we come to the end of a letter like this, we can sort of assume that this material is not all that helpful, it's not relevant for us. And In our regular Bible reading, the the introductions and the, the closing remarks, we can kind of just skip over those, read them really quickly, and move on. But we can't do that this morning because there is is much instruction for us. Every word of scripture is inspired by God himself and is therefore profitable, right? That's what Paul taught to Timothy. It's profitable for teaching. And so we're we're going to to learn from these words. But in order to do that, we're going to have to understand some background about these men that Paul mentions by name in this letter, and what we'll, we'll do is sort of peel back the layers of the onion of each of these characters the best we can. And what I want you to understand is that there's much for us to learn. While Paul is not going to give us direct instruction, there's much to take from the, the faithful ministry of these servants and apply to our own ministry as we serve in the local church. And as we've talked about in Colossians, each one of us, is in ministry, in the sense that we are commissioned by God through the great commission to be making disciples. And so there's much for us to glean from our verses this morning and over the next few weeks. With that in mind, read with me in Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. And we'll just read through the end of the letter in verse 18. Paul writes... As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they've proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bondslave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured. In all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed in the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Now for our text this morning, we're really going to be looking at verses 7 through 11. And what we'll see is that Paul breaks this sort of final bit of information into three parts. We're going to look at part one and the first half of part two this morning. But if we were to give a theme for the the truth that we learn from this text, it would be this in one simple statement. Our union with Christ produces a commitment to Christ, gospel service, and other believers. Let me say it again. Our union with Christ produces a commitment to Christ, gospel service, and other believers. We'll see those truths played out as we look at these different men and their ministries but the first part of this closing remarks, if you will, I've called authorized messengers authorized messengers verses seven to nine and we're going to look at these specific men and what we can learn from their ministries so the first person that we see here in this text is a man named Tychicus brother number one Tychicus look back at verse seven he says As to all my affairs, Tychicus. Now, let's stop for just a moment. When he says, as to all my affairs, as we've gone through this letter in Colossians, we've seen that Paul has said very little about himself and his situation. In fact, the only things that he's told us about his imprisonment really were the things that connected to his gospel ministry and how God was using his imprisonment to further the gospel. But as far as the the details of his condition, Uh, information about his sentence. He hasn't said anything about those things. And so when he says, as to my affairs, he means that Tychicus is going to be sent to them to give them that information. He knows that they are curious, just as we would be. Think about it, if we were in their situation and the Apostle Paul, a a respected apostle in the church, we know he's in prison, we would be curious, what's going on? Uh, Does he have any news about his sentence? Is is there some financial need that he has that we could help him with? So on and so forth. And so Paul sends Tychicus to give this information. Tychicus is clearly the primary messenger, but there is another man, Onesimus, that's going with him that we'll see here in just a moment. But let's look at this man, Tychicus. Who is this? This is a man, as we survey the New Testament, that was actually a very faithful believer that served for many years alongside the Apostle Paul. And we can see this just by sort of piecing together the different texts in the New Testament that mention him. There's four different places where this man is mentioned. And so we learn, for instance, that he was with the group of of delegates that were collecting the, the gift, the offering to the church in Jerusalem. You remember Jerusalem fell on hard times, and so the Gentile churches were collecting an offering, and Paul, with a team of men, was going from church to church, collecting this offering, and then ultimately journeying to Jerusalem. Tychicus was in that number. We see that in Acts 20, verse 4. Also, we see at the end of the letter to Ephesians, that Paul says something very similar about this man in Ephesians 6, verses 21 and 22. He says, "...but that you also may know about my circumstances, how I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, and that he may comfort your hearts." Remember that the book or the letter to the Ephesians was written by Paul in the same prison cell. It's a contemporary letter with Colossians. That's why there's been so much overlap between the two, as we've seen over and over again. Apparently, when Tychicus goes out to to see the Colossians, he also has the letter to the Ephesians. And so he was to hand deliver that letter as well. Thirdly, in Titus chapter 3, verse 12, we see there, when we studied Titus, we saw this that Paul told Titus to expect Tychicus to come and relieve him so that Titus could come and be with Paul. That means that if Tychicus was going to Crete to relieve Titus, that he had the responsibility then of overseeing those churches for a time. Obviously a great responsibility. And then finally, in Paul's last letter, in 2 Timothy verse, chapter 4, verse 12, we, hear, we read that Tychicus is sent to Ephesus to relieve Timothy of his role. Remember, Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. The the book of 2 Timothy is Paul's second imprisonment. It's the imprisonment that he would not escape from, but ultimately be executed after. It's his sort of farewell letter. And he says, Timothy, I want you to come and visit me, really, one last time. And so I'm going to send Tychicus to take over so that you can do that. Obviously, then, this was a trusted individual. We see him carrying letters of inspired scripture to churches. We see him going and relieving faithful pastors of their, their ministry so that they can travel. This was a guy that Paul really trusted. So it's, it's not coincidental then that he describes him here in Colossians with three very lofty descriptions. Look back at chapter 4, verse 7. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant, and fellow bondservant or slave in the Lord. Our beloved brother, faithful servant, fellow slave in the Lord. This was a man that obviously Paul loved, he cared deeply for, that's why he calls him beloved brother. And he says, our beloved brother, that is, others as well care deeply for him. And he was faithful in his ministry, even to be given the designation of a fellow slave of Christ. You remember, Paul often referred to himself as a slave of Christ. He gives that same title to Tychicus. The implication then is that Tychicus had given his full-time exertion to serving alongside Paul. He was a full-time missionary, so to speak, serving in the apostolic ministry of Paul. And here now, he will be an official delegate representing Paul himself bringing a letter and information to the church in Colossae. Notice he says at the end of verse 7 that Tychicus will bring you information. This is going back to his affairs. Concerning my affairs, Tychicus is coming to bring you information. That means that he would have given an update. He didn't just drop off the letter and then go to the next place, but he, in a sense, stood in Paul's stead. He came to represent Paul and to give them information information now from this just this simple fact that we are introduced to this man Tychicus and we see from the rest of the the new testament how he served alongside Paul there are some important things that we need to stop and realize first of all it reminds us that it should be a normal pattern in the new testament church for gifted spiritual leaders to be identifying and training other faithful men for ministry this is what Paul was doing with these eight men that we're going to see, Tychicus being one of those. He's, he's recognized their giftedness, he's taken them in, he's discipled them, and now he's giving them ministry opportunities. We, we see in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that this was what he told Timothy to be doing as well. 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, "...the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also." So from that we see that it wasn't just an apostolic commission to be entrusting and training men for ministry, but Timothy, a local pastor, is also to be identifying men within his church that are gifted, to raise them up, disciple them, and then to put them into ministry. This is... Is sort of a a, a side note, this is the reason we're involved in XL Ministries. It gives us the opportunity to train men for ministry within the local church. And this is a normal, regular pattern that should be a part of every healthy, faithful church. But secondly, the inclusion of these other faithful men shows us that gospel ministry was never meant to be a one-man operation. Instead, effective gospel ministry requires the involvement of a collection of gifted believers, both at the leadership level in the church and in the church collectively. Even the Apostle Paul did not try to carry out his ministry as a one-man show, but instead depended upon and utilized the the God-given giftedness of other believers. This is why he describes ...spiritual gifts the way he does to the Corinthians. So let's remind ourselves of how Paul describes how our gifts go together in the church... ...in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. He says, "...for even as the body is one and yet has many members... ...and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body... ...so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body... ...whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free... And we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, look at that, each one of them in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. You see what Paul is emphasizing, that in the local church, this is the the normal pattern of the church. If you're a Christian... Then you have been given a spiritual gift that is meant to be used in service for the building up of this local body. That's what that means. And we see that lived out in the ministry of Paul. It is not a biblical model for ministry to to be built only around one man or one person and their personality. This is true at the highest level. The church is not just to be about me as a pastor, but it's also true of you as you serve in your individual roles. Your role is ultimately not about you building up your name and reputation, but it is serving in conjunction with other believers and recognizing and utilizing their giftedness so that the body works as a whole. When ministry and service in the church becomes all about us as individuals, then we look at the giftedness of others as a challenge rather than a blessing. We, We look across the aisle and we see another brother or sister who's perhaps gifted in a way that we're not. And rather than rejoicing over the fact that God has given that gift to our church, we are jealous of that gift and desire to have it for ourselves. But a biblical approach to spiritual giftedness in the church is to be content with the gift that God has given us and to to focus our energy on using that gift to the best of our ability for the glory of Christ. Biblical elders are to see their role as identifying the giftedness of the members in the local church and equipping them to use that gift and then entrusting them to do so. That's what we see here in the ministry of Paul. He's identified Tychicus as a faithful man, and we'll see there were other men as well, and he's equipped him, and now he's going to send him out on this important mission as his delegate to Colossae and other churches. It's important to understand when we hear that, don't picture Tychicus going from, from, from North Lake to Argyle. Right? This is not a short trip. Paul is in, in Rome, and so he's going to Colossae, which is a long way. It's going to require travel by foot and by boat, hundreds of miles of walking and a long, probably multiple boat trips, to get there. And so he's, he's sending Tychicus off for months to go and make this journey that may at times even be dangerous... ...as Paul himself was shipwrecked on two occasions, as he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, this visit by Tychicus, Paul says, has two practical reasons or purposes. Look back at verse 8. He says, "...for I have sent him to you for this very purpose." Here is the purpose for which he is sent. The first reason is really just information. He says, first of all, that you may know about our circumstances. It's just a reiteration of what he said earlier. He's going to tell you about my affairs. But understand that Paul also has a shepherd's heart. And so when, when Paul does ministry, it's never just informational. So there's a second reason, he says, that I'm sending him to you. And this is encouragement. Look back. At verse 8, for this reason I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. So picture this, Tychicus makes the long journey to Colossae. He delivers the letter, perhaps he even stood and read the letter to the congregation. He would have been able to answer questions about Paul's circumstances. But this tells us that he also came with a message A message of encouragement to encourage these believers perhaps to stand strong in their faith. Remember in chapter 2 there's some false teaching going on in and around Colossae. So perhaps he came to to, to help them hold fast to what they believe and to stand firm in their faith. But he would have come with a message from the Apostle Paul to encourage the hearts of these Christians. And so while Tychicus is the official ministry partner of Paul bringing the letter, he has a second man with him. This is brother number two, Onesimus, Onesimus, look back at verse 8 there at the end, he'll encourage your hearts, and with him, Onesimus, in verse 9, now we've talked about Onesimus before because we, we dealt with him when we talked about Christian slaves and what the responsibility of Christian slaves and masters were. But just as a reminder, remember that Onesimus was a a slave, an unbeliever, who ran away from his master. His master's name was Philemon, and Philemon is from Colossae. This is likely Philemon's home church that this letter is going to here in the city of Colossae. And so Onesimus, in God's providence, flees his master and makes his way to Rome, and somehow comes into connection with the Apostle Paul, who's in house arrest And through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, God radically saves this man, Onesimus. And so he's been discipling this man, and now it's time for him to be sent back to Colossae to reconcile with Philemon, his master. But but notice how Paul describes this man, Onesimus, in verse 9. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. Faithful and beloved brother. Now just put yourself there in the in the seat. You're in Colossae. The letters being read. You you know Philemon. You probably know the story about his slave running away. That's made his way its way through the church. You know about this man Onesimus. But but beloved brother is probably not the word that comes to mind initially, but you have the apostle Paul here saying, No, he is faithful and a beloved brother. And just in case they're thinking maybe it's another Onesimus that has the same name, he adds, who is one of your number? Him. That guy. The one that ran away is coming back, and he's coming back with this affirmation of the Apostle Paul that he is a genuine believer. In one sense, it's the same man coming back, and yet it's a completely different man coming back. And if you're a believer, you know exactly what that means. He left an unbelieving, runaway slave, but he returns to them a repentant and beloved brother in Christ. And none other than the Apostle Paul affirms this as a faithful, beloved brother. And he goes beyond that. He could have left it there, but notice that the next phrase begins not with a singular pronoun but a plural he says they that is Tychicus and Onesimus will inform you about the whole situation here he involves Onesimus in this mission of giving information about the apostle Paul as as a friend as a beloved brother now we don't have time but the book of Philemon obviously outlines all that Paul said to Philemon about receiving Onesimus back, but, but certainly this public affirmation of Onesimus would have only strengthened that affirmation. Now the whole church knows this man has come to faith, and likely they carried the book of, or the letter to Philemon with him as well, and so that's a personalized letter directly to him, and some have wondered, did, did he follow through with what Paul said in forgiving Onesimus And the argument's been made that, well, it's in inspired scripture, so I would assume he did. Otherwise, he would never have shown the letter, right? But we have the letter because he did follow through with what Paul said. These are the first two men that are serving alongside the Apostle Paul. But now this brings us to a second section or a second part of Paul's final words that we've called heartfelt greetings, Heartfelt greetings. So he said, these are the two men coming to you, bringing the letter and information. And now he goes into this series of greetings similar to, a little bit shorter, but similar to Romans chapter 16 as he closes out that letter. And what's, what you'll notice as you read through this is that even these greetings break down into sections. There are three different sections of greetings. We're just going to look at the first section this morning and the other two next week. Because he gives greetings from different groups of individuals. So greeting number one is from Jewish brothers. Jewish brothers or Christians. And here we see another list of faithful men serving alongside the Apostle Paul in verse 10. Verse 10 begins, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. Aristarchus. This is not a, a name that we're likely familiar with, much like Tychicus. We know Paul, but we don't know these men. But actually, Aristarchus, similar to Tychicus, is mentioned in several other places in Scripture. And again, as we put those together, we can understand more about this man. He also is on the same list that Tychicus was in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. That is, he was part of the group going with Paul to collect the gift for the church in Jerusalem. But the most interesting passage, this is the one that we'll read, the most interesting passage about this man, Aristarchus, comes to us in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, Paul and and those with him are ministering in Ephesus. And in the middle of their ministry, a riot breaks out against Paul and his associates. Look at Acts 19, beginning in verse 23, and we'll read this story through verse 30. It says, "'About that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way.'" The way was what the gospel that Paul preached came to be known as. "'For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis,' it's a false god, "'was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, "'Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business.'" You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. I find that really a comical statement. (laughs) Not only that, there's danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Basically... People aren't buying false idols anymore because they're coming to Christ and realizing those aren't true gods. And these men, these idol makers, are losing a ton of money. And so they stir up this riot that that catches fire in the whole city. And they rush into the theater, chanting at the top of their lungs, great is Artemis. But they grab two of Paul's associates and bring them in with them. Did you catch the second one? Aristarchus. So Aristarchus then, and apparently they didn't bring him in there to give him warm hugs of greeting, right? They, they, they brought, we don't know what they did to him, but it probably wasn't pleasant because Paul wants to go in and try to calm things down, but it's obviously dangerous, and so they hold him back and they won't let him go in. But by then, Gai- Gaius and Aristarchus are already there. So this was a faithful brother who had even endured persecution and hardship for the name of Christ, serving alongside Paul. He's been with Paul now for a number of years. And Paul gives him an interesting description. He says, Aristarchus, verse 10, my fellow prisoner. My fellow prisoner. Now, there's some debate here as to whether or not Paul is being literal, saying that Aristarchus himself is also in prison there in Rome, or if he is being symbolic in some way. There's no evidence that Aristarchus at this point had actually been arrested, and so I'm of the mind that Paul is actually using this term in a very interesting way to show his endearment for this man. But to understand that, we have to have a little bit of context about what it was like to be in a Roman prison at this time. Understand that being put in prison was not considered a form of punishment by the Romans. It was just a holding place. It was a holding place until you could have a trial and then be given the punishment. And and so Paul is in this holding place waiting for his trial. But the Romans had had no great motivation to move things along. It wasn't to their benefit. And so you could just be left there for long periods of time. And that's what happens to Paul. He's in this, this prison sort of under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, and his accusers, remember, they're from Jerusalem, which is a long way away. They never come to Rome to make their case. And so they just leave Paul in prison. He's there for over two years. Now, here's the, the hard thing about that: is As a prisoner, you were responsible to get your own food, your own clothing, and all of your needs. The only problem is you're in prison, right? So how's that going to happen? The people who love you have to come around you and provide for your needs, And what likely was happening is that this man Aristarchus had so committed himself to the Apostle Paul that he may even have been staying with Paul in house arrest and overseeing that all of his needs were met. Bringing in food, bringing in clothing, uh, helping him receive visitors and whatnot because he was allowed to receive visitors while under house arrest. And so he says, my fellow prisoner, as if to say the one who is enduring the same hardships with me, but not as a real prisoner but perhaps just as a loyal friend and ministry partner. And so that's why I say it's almost a term of endearment. The word for prisoner actually is a Greek word that's usually used for a prisoner of war. And so it's not necessarily that he's a literal prisoner for the same crime that Paul committed, but a fellow partner in ministry, in the battle of ministry, who has come alongside and is caring for my needs. And he just has a simple message from Aristarchus. He sends you his Greetings. He sends you his greetings. It's a simple greeting, but it expresses that these men also had a heart for the local churches there, for Colossae and for the people involved. This is the first of his Jewish companions, but there are two others that we'll see. It brings us to brother number four, Mark. Mark. Look with me back at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark... About whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. He adds here, and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, the inclusion of this man should strike you as odd. First of all, let's talk about Barnabas, who's described as Mark's cousin. Barnabas was famous among the churches, which is why he mentions him here. He's like, if you don't know Mark, you know Barnabas. This is Barnabas' cousin. Barnabas, if you remember, was the first one that was brave enough to go and meet Paul after his conversion. Because remember, Paul initially was persecuting Christians. He goes and he meets Paul and introduces Paul to the other apostles. But then beyond that... There is this church in, in Antioch, a Gentile church, that begins to sprout up and is really growing. And, and the apostles hear about it back in Jerusalem. So they send a delegate to, Jeru- to Antioch to check on this new church. That's Barnabas. Barnabas goes. Sure enough, Antioch is, is a, a new church. It's, it's vibrant. It's healthy. But they need teaching. They need discipling. So what does he do? He goes and finds Paul, brings him to Antioch. And Paul stays there for a considerable amount of time teaching and discipling the Christians at Antioch until finally, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the people in Antioch lay their hands on Paul and Barnabas and send them out as missionaries. The first missionary journey happens there from Antioch and it's in partnership with this man named Barnabas. He was known for his encouragement and he was known as an evangelist. But... At some point, there is a huge rift in the relationship between Paul and Barnabas, so much so that when it comes time to go on a second missionary journey, they split up and they take two different journeys. They don't go together. You say, now what in the world could cause such a rift between two godly men? It's this man named Mark. Mark is the source of contention. Mark is also called John and John Mark in other places in the scripture. And what happened was Mark went with them on their first missionary journey. He accompanied Paul and Barnabas, only he gets cold feet at some point. And he abandons the mission and goes back home, Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John, that's John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Right there in the middle of the missionary journey, he abandons the mission. He abandons Paul and Barnabas. And so now, when it comes time to go on the second missionary journey, listen to the, the discussion between Paul and Barnabas. Acts 15, verses 36 to 41. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with him also, But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." So this is a massive rift between these two godly men over what to do with Mark because he had proved himself not to be faithful. But praise God, that was not the end of the story for this young man named Mark. Because here he is, listed as a fellow worker with Paul. In verse 11, he refers to all three of these men as fellow workers for the kingdom of God. That includes Mark. In fact, Mark ends up becoming so precious to Paul that in his final letter, 2 Timothy, he tells uh, Timothy that he wants him to bring Mark with him when he comes to visit. He says, verse 11, Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. You see what's happened? There's been a transformation. There's been maturity. There's been growth in the life of this man, Mark. Amazing transformation has taken place, so much so that the Apostle Paul not only accepts him, but says, send him to me because he's useful to me for service. You know, all too often we're tempted to see the mistakes and shortcomings of other brothers and sisters in the church and then view them through the lens of those shortcomings for years to come. But the truth is, all of us have sinned. And all of us can point to times in our life where we've not been as faithful as we should have been. But when a brother repents and works hard to show himself faithful in those areas that were previously shortcomings, we're to follow the example of the Apostle Paul to receive them back and even allow them to continue on in ministry. There's a lot of opinions about whether or not Barnabas was correct in the way he treated Mark or if Paul was correct in the way he treated Mark. And I think, honestly, if Mark were here today and we asked him, which of those men had the greatest impact on your life, he would say that God in his providence used the mixture of those men in his life to bring about future faithfulness. He had, at the same time, the rebuke that was needed from the Apostle Paul and also the discipleship and mentorship that was needed from Barnabas. And that came together in his life to be, become, ultimately, what he became, a faithful man of God. In fact... His faithfulness went so far as to build a relationship, a close relationship with the Apostle Peter. Such a relationship that in 1 Peter 5, verse 13, he calls him my son. He says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. To go one step further, that Bible that you hold in your hands has a gospel by the name of Mark. It's this man who was to pen that gospel. Brothers and sisters, would we be so willing to forgive and restore another believer who abandoned us in such a personal and hurtful way as Mark did? We have to follow the example of the Apostle Paul here in our local church and allow for the fact that as people are discipled in their faith, they will make mistakes and they will oftentimes sin and, and do things that are hurtful to us personally personally. We must show them the grace that Christ has shown us, rather than giving up on them, giving them opportunity and time to grow and mature. It doesn't mean that there's not a time to rebuke. That doesn't mean that there's not a time to come alongside. It doesn't mean that there aren't even some cases where a person persists in sin to the point of, of having to come under church discipline. But it does mean that when they repent of that mistake, that we don't keep a record of wrongs, but instead we're willing to receive them back continue to mentor and disciple them, and ultimately one day, as they prove themselves faithful, give them opportunities again to serve. Mark's lack of faithfulness on the first missionary journey may have given him a negative reputation. The word spreads fast there as it does here, and that might be why Paul adds this little parenthetical statement here. If you look back at verse 10, he says, Barnabas' cousin Mark... About whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. We, we don't know what instructions they received, and we don't know who gave them these instructions, but we do know that Paul is giving a public affirmation here of Mark to say no matter what you've heard of him, receive him, welcome him as a faithful fellow worker. There's instruction there for us. But finally this morning, we're going to see a fifth Brother mentioned here, and it's in verse 11, he says, And also Jesus, who is called Justice. Jesus, who is called Justice. Now, this is the only man on the list that we really don't have any further information about outside of his name. The word Jesus actually is a Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, and so it was a common name for Jewish boys to have. But in this case, this man has a nickname that's more popularly. Known of him, and it's the name Justice. And that really is as far as our knowledge of this man goes. But as I've thought about it, I think there's actually encouragement for us this morning in the fact that we don't know anything about him other than his name. Because here's a man who spent his life serving alongside the Apostle Paul, giving his energy to be a help to him and to serve Christ. And no doubt there were many other men and women who were attached to the ministry of Christ and the ministry of the apostles who served faithfully for their entire lives. And we don't even have their names in Scripture. And this should encourage us because it reminds us that faithfulness and reward for spiritual service are not reserved only for the famous Church history is, in fact, filled with unknown believers who lived faithful Christian lives, giving their full uh, service to the Lord, and no one knows who they are. Maybe, in fact, you're here this morning, and the primary ways that God has gifted you is to serve behind the scenes in ways that are rarely seen, noticed, or given praise. Maybe some are even watching online that would desperately love to be here with us, but they have some physical ailment that keeps them from being present. And so they're watching online, and yet they're prayer warriors that pray, that that shake heaven with their prayers on behalf of the body. This is a reminder that while others may not see, the master sees. God cares, and God takes notice It's a reminder that we don't serve for the accolades of men or for our names to be etched on the stones of history. We serve for the glory of another. And our reward is not the praise of men, but that we might one day hear the Master say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. We can't tell stories about Jesus' justice like we can about Barnabas and about Mark and about Paul. But God knows everything this man ever did. And he knows your name as well. So take courage this morning in your service. Be renewed in your commitment to serve Christ with all you've got, with your full ability, not for the praise of man, but for his glory alone. At this point, Paul closes out this first section of greetings with a statement that might strike us as a little bit odd. Look back at verse 11 again. And also Jesus, who's called Justice... These, referring to all three men we just looked at, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. And they've proved to be an encouragement to me. These are the only fellow workers from the circumcision. When he says from the circumcision, he's just saying they're Jewish. These are Jewish men. And Of course, Paul has encountered a lot of other Jewish Faithful believers in his travels and in his ministry, but at this point in time, if this in this snapshot, if you will, these are the only three Jewish brothers who were serving alongside him. And he says they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Now keep in mind that the church in Colossae that will receive this letter is predominantly a Gentile church. Uh, There may have been Jews there, as there probably were in most of these churches, but it was predominantly a Gentile membership. So what in the world is Paul doing here, distinguishing these brothers as being an encouragement to him and and distinguishing them as being Jewish? Well, it's important to remember the context in which Paul lives. First of all, Paul was a Jew. In fact, Paul was a very faithful and and ardent Jew before he came to know Christ. He was a Pharisee. He he persecuted Christians until the Lord saved him. But not only was Paul a Jew, but Jesus was a Jew. In fact, Jesus was the long awaited Messiah that the Jewish people supposedly had been waiting for so long and praying for. And yet here he comes on the scene. Instead of getting the fanfare and the worship he deserved, he was murdered. He was murdered. Now that Paul's been converted, he sees the scriptures for what they are. He sees them clearly. He sees that Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is the one that his people have waited for for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we know from other passages like Romans 11 that Paul was deeply grieved over the fact that not more of his countrymen were coming to Christ. The vast majority of the Jewish people responded to the gospel that Paul preached with hostility and with hatred. You remember, he's even in prison right now because of false accusations by Jewish brothers because they're angry at him. Every time that Paul entered into a city on his missionary journeys, he would always go first to the synagogue and preach to the Jews. And and invariably, there there would be a a bad reception of that at some point, and he would have to go out then and begin preaching to the Gentiles. But Paul has seen over and over and over again this rejection of the gospel, particularly among his people, while the Gentiles are flourishing. They're they're hearing the gospel and they're coming to Christ. So when Paul says that these three men are from the circumcision and they're a particular encouragement to me, he's not making some racial distinction, like because they're Jews, just because of their blood, they're, they're more encouraging to me. He's saying, no, this is a reminder to me that God has not abandoned his people. That God is a saving God. In fact, this is the conclusion that Paul comes to in Romans 11. Romans 11 verse 5 says, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. He's talking there in context about a remnant of Jews. God is saving people from the Jewish nation. He's, He's always kept a remnant for himself. But what he's doing now is he's saving not just Jews but Gentiles and bringing them into one new body the church. I believe this is why Paul is so particularly encouraged. It's a reminder that while he is the apostle to the Gentiles, he's as equally thrilled when a Gentile comes to faith as a Jew. These three Jewish men who are faithful believers remind him that God is not done with his people. He's not slow in keeping his promise. He's faithful, and he's a savior for all, for all people. Next week, we will see Paul's Uh, final thoughts yet again and these greetings will complete this particular section but there's some important things for us to consider as we seek to apply the things that we've seen to our own hearts and so I just want to ask you a few questions so let, let these truths sit there and sort of marinate in our hearts and our minds the first one is are we transformed by the gospel are we Transformed by the gospel. We have seen men like Onesimus and and Antiochus and Aristarchus, men transformed by the gospel. And perhaps you're wondering why in the world have they put so much energy into this? Why have they left everything to serve the Apostle Paul, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring about the gospel? Obviously, these were intelligent men. They could have done a number of other things, other professions, if you will. Why are they spending all their time and energy on this? And it was because they understood the gospel and had been made new and transformed by the gospel. The question this morning is, have you been transformed by the gospel? Do you understand, as these men did, that you are a sinner who's separated from a holy God? who deserves the wrath of God, that if God gave you justice, if he gave me justice, we would receive his eternal wrath. And have you understood that Jesus Christ really is the long prophesied and awaited Messiah, God in human flesh, who lived a perfectly righteous life and gave that life as a sacrifice on the cross, only to rise again on the third day, proving that he was who he said he was and that the Father had accepted his sacrifice for sin. Have you personally come to believe that fact and have you trusted in him as your only hope for salvation? putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone, recognizing your sin, turning from that sin to Jesus Christ as your only hope. Because if you haven't, then that is the takeaway for you this morning, to be transformed by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you'll never ask again, I wonder why those men gave so much to serve this Jesus. It's because they knew him and had been transformed by him. So that's the first question we have to ask and answer this morning as we respond honestly to this text. But secondly, believers, are we content in our giftedness? Are we content in our giftedness? Are we content as these men were to play the role that God has for us to play from the role that Paul obviously played, we, we know about his role, but now we know there are all these other people serving roles that, that didn't get the attention and didn't get the fanfare. Are, are you tempted to look over the fence at the giftedness of other Christians in the church and desire them jealously and to be discontentment about the giftedness God has given you? Think about how dysfunctional Paul's ministry team had been if, if Tychicus was jealous that Aristarchus got to stay and be so closely related to Paul. And Aristarchus is jealous because he doesn't understand why Paul wouldn't send him to be the one to go and give the encouraging message to these churches. Instead, the, the implication that we see in the text is that they were happy and content to play the role that God had given them with the giftedness that God had given them. And then our energies aren't wasted sinfully, but they're focused and pointed and edifying to the church for the glory of Christ. Is that how you think about your giftedness, whatever it may be? Thirdly, are we faithful in our service? Are we faithful in our service? I had to sit back and honestly say, if Paul came to North Lake Bible Church for a month and then he wrote a letter to another church, would he be able to say of me and of you by name, They're a fellow worker, a slave of Jesus Christ because of the way he observed how he so faithfully served in this church. That's what happened here with these men. He's able to commend them. So these are men I trust. These are men you can trust because they've proven over a series of months and years to be faithful workers of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not in service, if you're a member of our church and you're not serving, you're not using your gifts Get plugged in. Use the gifts that God has given you. Don't deprive the body of the giftedness that God's given for the edification of the body. And then fourthly, are we as believers lavish in our forgiveness? Are we lavish in our forgiveness? Is there anyone in your life against whom you're keeping a record of wrongs? Any marks in your life? Anyone that you just simply will not allow to outgrow or outmature that mistake they made years ago. Remember that all of us at best are improving copies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's true, that means then day by day, month by month, year by year, as we improve in that copy of Christ by the Spirit's work, we're not the same that we were day by day, month by month, year by year. Are you willing to forgive the failures and sins and expressions of immaturity committed by other members of this church. If Paul's willing to recognize that Mark, who had abandoned him in the middle of the first missionary journey from the church at Antioch, had grown and matured in his faith to the point that he was useful for ministry, and how we, can we deny others of lesser sins and expressions of unfaithfulness against us and against our church when they're genuinely repentant and working to be faithful in those ways? It's my prayer that this snapshot, this photograph in time from the ministry of the Apostle Paul would cause all of us to evaluate our own faithfulness and may God use it to make us more like him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're convicted, we're humbled, even over a a section of, of scripture like that that may be different than others. We're just sort of a fly on the wall looking at this ministry from afar, and yet we see so many ways in which you use different believers with different giftedness to accomplish your ultimate ends, just like parts of a body working together. God, we pray that you would use us here at North Lake Bible Church, that you would help us to be further and further equipped in the use of our gifts, help us to continue in maturing in our character, and maturing in the usefulness that we have to this local body. God, we also recognize there may be those with us that don't know Christ today, and we pray that today would be the day that you'd bring them to yourself, opening their eyes to their sin and to the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all of this for the sake of your glory, in the name of Jesus. Amen.